This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Okay, so I'm sitting here with Jesse Akosbeck, and uh, Jesse, welcome back to the show. It's good to have Thank you back you. on. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. So could you introduce yourself for everybody listening that may not have heard our other episode or know who you are? Yeah, definitely. So uh, my name is Jesse and I run the forging education platform, Feral Forging. So I equipped people with the tools and knowledge that they need to become uh, better, more responsible and more effective foragers. Wow. That's a lot, <laughs> but I like it. Yeah. So yeah, um, what what are these tools that you equip people with then? So a big thing that I am always trying to do is to uh, help people find the first step for forging. For someone who, especially now, uh, one of the cool things that's going on is that there's a lot of people who are sharing about forging, who are educating about forging, who are inspiring people about forging. So I think more and more people are getting interested but, you know, the classic thing is, I mean, the, the most classic is, well, I'm afraid that I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to eat the wrong thing and I'm going to get poisoned or, you know, whatever the thing might be. So I try to make a lot of material for bringing people in the door and saying like, hey, here is how you get started with foraging. Here is how you uh, avoid that situation of finding something that you you didn't know what it was and you accidentally had something the the wrong one or a poisonous lookalike uh, and, you know, dispel that whole thing and um, help them to to know the lay of the land, I guess is the best way to, to yeah. say it. 
I find the more I get into foraging, and it was daunting when I first got into, I felt overwhelmed, didn't know where to look, um, carried books with me sometimes. A lot of times I didn't. And then it's like, oh, what was that? Oh, I can't remember. You take a picture and the picture's not as good. But now with like apps on your phone to like cross verify, I don't ever trust apps, but even like the iPhone has a thing where you can click on it now and check it. But if I think I know what that plant is, or I'm like 95% sure, and then I take a picture of it, and it tells me the same thing, I'm going to believe that. But not, I still want to verify somewhere else. You know, it's not like I always just try and go, oh, yeah, that's, that's this, and this is this, and this is what it told me, because it has been wrong. I'd say about 50 to 60% of the time wrong. You yeah. Know? So it's like, wait a minute. And there's been times where I ID'd something and also saw it on there and it said it was something else, you know, and I'm like, I, I don't, I don't think that's right. You know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, how, how do you, you overcome that fear or overcome that? Because for me at first it was hard until I kind of started actually learning entire plant families and things that, uh, you know, like, a in the mustard family, if it's got four petals, right. And it's got four stamens tall and two short, it's, it's anywhere in the world you can find that plant and all of a sudden you know, hey, this is a plant, it's edible, it's in the mustard family. And like that makes so much more sense to me now. But I didn't know that, didn't understand botany, didn't think I'd ever have to learn botany or Latin names, right? And now all of a yeah. sudden it's like, wait a minute, okay, if I know the Latin name and it's like the genus or whatever of that Latin name, typically that plant tends to fall somewhere in that category and now all of a sudden things are falling in place. But, I mean, how, how do you get people to overcome that fear? Yeah, so really quickly, uh, for people who are listening to this and you heard about the the uh, four long stamen and two short stamen, look for that. Like, uh, it's one of those details that is small, but when you look closely at it, it's so obvious. And I think that those are some of the coolest things to find. Like, another one is uh, the next time that you find a tree that... Uh, maybe you look at it and it looks like a cherry tree to you. Look at the base of the leaves and you'll see these two tiny like spotted uh, kind of glandular structures. Those are called extra floral nectaries and uh, they are there. Uh, they secrete uh, nectar. So they're there to attract insects and pollinators to the tree. Tiny details like this. Those are on and the those leaves? ones. Yes. At the base of the leaf, kind of on the on the petiole. So so the, the leaf stem. Okay. Leading to the structure of the leaf. Yeah interesting and there's so there is a particular detail between american plum prunus americana and chickasaw plum prunus angustifolia that prunus angustifolia has those glands present but american plum does not so that's uh, one detail that you can use to distinguish them and that situation of you know one has this the other one doesn't is present uh, there is at least one detail present in every situation of any, you know, quote, lookalike or similar looking plants. There's at least one detail and usually many more well, always many more details to go by. So another one would be poison hemlock versus wild carrot. Well, <laughs> wild carrot has hairs. Poison hemlock has no hairs. Wild carrot uh, does not have purple splotching. Poison hemlock does have purple splotching, and so on. There are many other details that we could look at. Now, for beginners, 
if you're just getting started with a situation like that, where one of them is not just like a little bit toxic, but potentially deadly toxic, it's, it's a good thing to keep on working on your plant ID skills. So that's a, a big circle to go back to the original point that we started on, which is, and I would say in relation to the plant ID apps, I use plant ID apps every single day. I use a naturalist. It's it's my favorite because it's also kind of like a community of people who are identifying things and comparing what other people are finding and helping other people identify. Uh, and it has the features of, it will suggest to you from the pictures of, we think that it might be this thing. Okay, great. So. That is what I think the best use of this plant ID apps is, is it's going to give you a usually decent first guess. If you have no idea what it might be, it's going to kind of put you in the right direction. From there, we use fundamental plant ID skills and details and start to go through a process of elimination. So the two that I always teach people, the very, very first things are for plants, leaf type and leaf arrangement. So two common types of leaves you're gonna come across. One is compound. So think like uh, pecan leaves, hickory leaves, um, or Virginia creeper, poison ivy. Those are all actually compound leaves made up of individual leaflets. So the trope about poison ivy leaves of three, leave it be, it's actually leaflets of three, but we'll give them a pass (laughs) on that one. Versus a simple leaf, So something like dogwood or cherry, where the whole structure, that that one part that looks like a leaf, that is the whole leaf. Cottonwood. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then going on from there, uh, then we go to arrangement. So, for instance, sumac has compound leaves. Elderberry has compound leaves. They can look relatively similar. Elderberry has oppositely branched compound leaves. Sumac has alternately branched compound leaves. So those two details, if you are wanting to start to learn the fundamentals of plant ID, so it's not just like, well, I know what dandelion looks like. I know what clover looks like, but I know what it looks like. And here's the reason why I would recommend starting with those two. We get our, our uh, first guess from the plant ID app and okay, great. So this plant that I'm looking at, well, it has oppositely branched leaves. Here's the first suggestion. Well, that one has alternately branched leaves. So, well, it can't be that, you know, and then the next one. And maybe it's something like, well, that one has hairs all over it and this one doesn't. And you just keep on going through those set of details. Two more that typically come right after arrangement and leaf type would be serration of the edges of the leaves. So some, if you look at the edge of a leaf, it'll be smooth. Sometimes they're jagged or serrated. Uh, and then lobing. And, and this is a term that I thought was more common, but I, I made a, a video about talking about wild carrot and I was talking about the lobing and everyone was saying like, what is that? What, what does lobing mean? <laughs> so lobing is the best way that I can describe it without using the term lobe would be the way that there are uh, divisions in the leaf. So if someone could imagine a a maple leaf, imagine the Canadian flag. I'm born in Canada, so all right. (laughs) Uh, The maple leaf on the Canadian flag is a lobed leaf. So there are parts that come out from the center, and then there are spaces in between the outer extending lobes 
of the leaves. And then other leaves like cherry that we talked about before are unlobed. Uh, sometimes the term for that would be that they're entire. So those are four details right there. We have leaf arrangement, leaf type, serration, and lobing. And already right there, in most cases, unless you're dealing with a very specific thing like within a genus, are probably going to get you to the genus of the plant that you are looking for. And then, you know, you just keep on going from there. Yep. The order that you do these things in is it's helpful to go in a certain order. For instance, we were talking about those uh, glands at the base of the leaf, the extra extra floral nectaries. That's not the first thing to look for, right? We don't <laughs> right off the bat say, well, does it have these or not? Uh, so we're going with the details that all plants share, the broadest ones, and narrowing it down. If you want to know how to identify any plant, then the biggest thing that I recommend, and this goes for mushrooms as well, is to find good dichotomous keys. So those are those really nerdy things that you might find yep. in a field guide. And yes, using field guides is awesome. Oh, and we'll just throw out a plug, by the way, for Sam Thayer's new field guide, which just came out. Does that have? Uh, I didn't even notice it had a key in there, did it? So it's uh, I've been I've been digging through. I haven't uh, gone through the the key I've just parts been and flipping details through chapters, like looking at stuff and and but memorizing way, pictures that I don't know. But right. So the way that I actually I got it right in front of me, so <laughs> I can use it as a reference. Uh, so, for instance, a section will be this section that I open it to: basal leaves present, stem leaves alternate lobed or divided sap milky okay so those are a set of broad characteristics that we'll be looking for this sounds like uh dandelion would be an example dandelion dandelion has the basal leaves so it kind of forms that rosette yep. those are present uh the leaves on the stem will alternate uh they are often lobed or divided toothed and the sap is milky, right? If we break the stem of dandelion, it, it exudes that classic milky, milky latex. And we can go to another section. Uh, that, let's, that's another, let's go to one where the basal leaves are absent. Yeah, here's one. Flowering stem leafless, basal leaves toothed or lobed. So, you know, these are all just different details. Uh, and... I would say that if one wanted to be really serious about, you know, they find a plant and they're like, okay, well, where am I going to look in Sam's book for this is to learn what those details mean. So then you can be like, okay, well, it's got this thing, this thing, this thing. Ah, I need to go to this section. Yeah. And that's really going to start to uh, supercharge your plant identification and foraging journey. So dichotomous key mushroom books all that the rain promises and more i think is the name of the book i can't remember the author but uh some weird weird looking guy in a tuxedo like a peewee on herman the, tuxedo on the cover, on the yeah. cover I, with like a saxophone or a trumpet or something i can't remember <laughs> but that book has an amazing key in it and i've actually used it to id yep that's it all that the rain promises and more and who's the author on that? I just pulled it off of my uh, bookshelf because <laughs> this is a really, really great one. Uh, David Aurora. David is the author Aurora. Of this one. Yes. 
And so that book is amazing. I've used it to ID mushrooms before. And uh, it's super easy to just follow the key and go, okay, yeah, that no, this is it. No, it doesn't have a veil. Yes, it does have this. It does have gills. And just follow that list down until you can narrow it down. And then you get to color of spore print. And then yeah. it's as simple as that. Okay, now I know yeah. what this is, you know. And and keying mushrooms is something or, or identifying mushrooms is something that is still very new to me. I'm really comfortable with plants. If I find any plant, then I'm confident that if I don't know what it is, I know the steps to figure out what it is. With mushrooms, I'm still learning. But I've been going through the keys of like a book like this. Another great resource is mushroomexpert.com has fantastic keys that are freely available. You could go to that website right now and have access to those keys. And yeah, it's going to tell you, you know, you're looking at a some guild mushroom in front of you. I have no idea what this is, but it's going to be asking you, you know, what is the spore print? Does it have a cap and a stem or does it not? Was it growing on the ground? Is it larger or smaller than this? And so on. And but the way I think about it is if we start off with just a huge box with all the possibilities of what this thing could be, you know, if you just throw a dart on the board, that's that's your chance of getting it right. And we just keep on dividing that box into smaller and smaller parts until now. OK, I can actually look through, let's say, these five or 10 specimens that it could be. Yep. And then, you know, get your positive so, identity. Today I was in the yard and I was looking uh in the edge of the woods and i was like what is that plant i don't know what it is i was like did i put that there or is it something that is growing and so through identification right the first thing i do is i look at it notice it has alternating leaves then i id the stem and go oh gosh that's got a square stem or square ish stem right and i'm like Okay, alternating leaves, square stem. It's got to be in the mint family. What the heck is it? There's no flowers or anything on it. So then I start searching through pictures to ID the leaves, and they're very long, like uh, taper down to almost a teardrop on the leaf. And I go, okay, that's giant hyssop. Had no idea what it was, but through those characteristics was able to identify what it was. And so now I know when it flowers, it'll be giant hyssop. Yeah. I think I think you meant opposite or opposite. I'm like, sorry. Yeah. 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 Opposite leaves. Yeah. Good. Thank you for the correction on that. But yes, <laughs> definitely. Yes. They were alternating in pattern to where they're opposite of each other stacked. Yes. Oh, oh, I see what you're yeah. saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, there, yeah. there's a. Um, there's a botanical term for that, and I can't remember off the top of my head. There's a botanical <laughs> term for everything. Yeah. But the pattern where it's like they're going one way out one part of the stem and then further up and they're they're going the other way so they're perpendicular to each other yeah so yeah it was giant hyssop awesome and i wouldn't have never known that if i wouldn't have learned the characteristics of the mint family so <laughs> the book um oh shoot what's the name botany in a day yes. is another really fantastic one that i recommend to everyone thomas elpel because yes uh, who is going to be, I believe, at the Midwest Wild Harvest Festival this oh, year. you mean the thing uh, I don't have tickets to. <laughs> yeah, which is sold out, unfortunately. I heard it sold out very fast. Two hours, so, or less than two hours, is what I heard. But, so yeah, are you I going? Had my, or... 
I had my calendar. I had a reminder ready to go like that morning. That that was what was on my mind. I, I'll be going this year. OK. Yeah. All right. Yep. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I must have, you know, it, it was early that morning that I signed up because I had a feeling they talked about how fast they sold it the year before. And all this stuff is only getting more popular. Right. So, yeah, I just got lucky. And that's OK, though. What maybe one year I'll get up there again and uh make it happen but now it frees up my september for ricing or whatever else i want to do so (laughs) yeah and that's that's a cool one that i have not ever experienced myself before but i got to see uh sam's video about it of the whole process and that was really really cool to watch yeah so what are you uh what's kind of your plans and what are you looking forward iding or trying to teach other people to id i know you just did a plum video I saw it on social media. It was pretty cool. And you talked about those glands. Is there anything else that you're super excited to get out and try and look at? Right now, like this time of the year? Yeah. Yep. Definitely. So yeah, this is what I, it's almost kind of an in-between time right now. So we're just exiting like the the true springtime of the year. And for reference, I'm in North Alabama. So my season is going to be far accelerated from yep. people who are further north of me. So down here, we're exiting the the real springtime foraging. So all of our nice tender shoots and stems have gotten much more mature. And so they're not quite as good eating anymore. Uh, and we're getting into more of the summer fruit season down here. We're actually so just, yes. similar here in, okay. you know, in the central area of the united states in the midwest we actually spring beauties are pretty much all gone the ramps Mm -hmm. have pretty much started to yellow um we're uh we're coming near the end of ours for sure so we're kind of we're kind of with you which is weird because normally you guys are way way ahead but it was like we had full-on summer weather a cold snap and now we're back into full-on summer weather again morels are done they're, uh, yeah. if you find them, they were all, they were even dried up during morel season this year because it was kind of a dry start. And so those were pretty dried up too, which is kind of weird for us. But, uh, yeah, so we're kind of with you, but normally what you guys have three growing seasons is kind of the, as far as like modern agriculture, there's about two or three down there. I believe so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, it's somewhere around April 1st is our last frost date. So, yeah, it's we have a long or we have a short cool season, like for a lot of cool season crops, like lettuce, for instance. We don't need to start our warm season crops. Also, like for reference, I'm a gardener. So this is just like what I've experienced in my in my garden. Uh, I'm not an expert in this. But from what I've seen, we need to start our cold, cooler season crops like lettuce much more than our warm ones. We got plenty of, of warm season for tomatoes and cucumbers and squash and things like that but a a relatively thin window for really nice growth of of colder ones like lettuce and kale and and crops like that nice yeah so anyway though you're you're getting into your away from the tender shoots all that stuff and now you're getting into the summer fruiting right so just yesterday i was getting to check out some land with a friend of mine that he is purchasing and it's right up against the border of um, 
uh, national forest that's here in Alabama. So that was really cool. So we were going around and then we went up to a gravel road that's going through the national forest. And by the way, I so early on in my foraging journey, I had this idea that you go in the woods to forage. And for the more mature forests around here in North Alabama, in the woods, there's no food. Very, very little food. Like except if I want to look for, yeah, <laughs> except for animals. Exactly. Uh, but even for the animals, I don't, you know, other than some, some browse, they're not going into the woods for their food. You want to be looking for places where there's more sun, more access to sun is more energy. More energy means more ability to produce things like fruits and nuts and berries and so on. So we were going along this gravel road, which, you know, cuts out a bit of the canopy. So there's nice sun access. And right there was a beautiful red mulberry. So the native mulberry tree that was just full of fruit. Unfortunately, we were on a very tight uh, time scale and it was too high up in the tree. Didn't have a tarp with me or anything. So it would have been very difficult to get to harvest them. But mulberries all around us, both red mulberry and white mulberry are getting close to being ripe. Some of them are ripe already, if in ideal conditions. I was out there and saw all of the elderflower, which is out. So that's one that I really look forward to every single year, whether it's for the flowers or the berries later in the season. And oh, what was the other one? Oh, so I don't always get these, but some years we can get a good crop or a good um, fruiting of black cherry. That one's kind of inconsistent, and it's really hard to find a good spot for it. But when I do, I can get a, a fair bit of black cherries. These are not large grocery store cherries by any means. They're very tiny. They don't always taste very good. Like, they taste a bit more medicinal, so to speak. But they make amazing syrups with. So, so that's another fruit. Like, bigger than choke or hackberry? Or? Around a little bit bigger than... Like about the size of really large hackberry. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's pretty small. <laughs> yeah. Is it is it a yeah. thicker flesh or is it pretty consistent with like, you know, regular, you know what I'm saying? As far as like size, relative size, obviously if it's smaller, but the flesh is a lot more. I mean, there's very little flesh on a hackberry, but the black cherry has a, oh. lot, a lot more flesh. Yeah, m much more than a hackberry, definitely. Okay. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, the, the seed pit is going to be much smaller. I mean, you know, like, it, it feels like eating a cherry, when you, a really small cherry. But, yeah, I think because because they're so small uh, and you're dealing with all the tiny pits, I think that a better way to use them would be something like syrup or jelly or wine or juice, some use like that. Yeah. So how do you how do you make your juice? Are you like a steamer guy or what do you utilize to get the You know, I haven't done that yet, yeah. but I I want to try. I haven't done so it either. <laughs> I don't I don't make juice very often, so to speak. I'm usually more making things like syrup jelly or wine. That's typically okay. what I'm making more of. And if of. you do your jellies, you still have to strain it somehow, right? To get all right. the Yeah, okay. Yeah, the only one that I, I don't strain is uh, I make rose jam where I leave the petals in and the invasive rose that we have here in Eastern North America, a Rosa multiflora, the one that grows all over the place. It has the uh, white petals. And here here's the cool 
a distinguishing characteristic. So the, what is it? The, the stipule. So the part where the stem of the leaf meets the, the main stem of the rose vine is going to be very bristly on Rosa multiflora, the invasive one. And most, if not all, of the native roses that we have in Eastern North America do not have that feature. So there will be a little bit of hairs on the stipule at the base of the leaf, but it will not be bristly the way that the invasive one is. So, you know, there's another one of those characteristics to go by. But I rip up, you know, as many of those petals that I can find, and I'll remove the plant if I if I can, uh, if I'm in a space where I can do that. And making a jam with the rose petals, it's divine. I think it's delicious. With the petals. Okay. So then that's like adding the petals in, infusing the water, and then pretty much sugar and pectin or using natural pectin. Uh, The the pectin's added for that one. I mean, you know, you you could could use another wild fruit to get the pectin if you wanted. And then an an acid of some kind as well. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Because I was... Have you ever done anything with like the hips then, as far as uh, making jams or in- jellies or anything with that, or no? I haven't. I haven't done that use with them before. No, I've made tea with the hips before. Unfortunately, in the ones that I found down here for the rose hips of the invasive rose, they're just too tiny and tedious to gather a meaningful amount of them. Okay, so. I haven't, I, I, I've done it just to try it, but I haven't got to do it in a, a really meaningful way. Yeah. I, I just pick them and nibble on them, you know, like trail, right. trail side nibbles. Uh, one time last, last hunting season, I was in a spot. It was dark, climbed up in the tree, knew I got snagged on something on the way up, looked down. Oh, Hey, there's some multiflora rose right there. And then when I got down, filled up my pockets and was just eating them on the way out. But, uh, I've never actually collected enough to do anything with. Even with teas, it seems tedious to collect enough of them to make teas to dry them. I've actually just bought bags of them before. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is quite tedious. Yeah. A, a note about the invasive plants thing, because that's been another popular topic lately. And I'm glad it is because it's something that we all should be talking about more. I, I always argue that I think foraging is one of the greatest things that people can do for the environment for for their local ecology for them to build that relationship with nature it is inevitable that you will begin to care about it in a way that you never realized was there and one of those is caring about the especially the native plants that you are foraging for you want them to prosper you want more of them and invasive plants the the thing about them because you'll see them and yes, they will have bees on them. They will have other pollinators. Those bees are typically or an often honeybee, European honeybee, which is another, I'll say non-native. Yeah. Uh, not non-native necessarily insect invasive, in Eastern... but non-native because they right, bring yeah. them for, yeah, for honey. And I think the big thing that is often missed is that one, invasive plants displace native plants like that that's why we that's why i would use the term invasive to them not not just that they're here and they're not from here but they're here and they grow in an aggressive pattern where they're displacing other plants around them privet is a great example of that honeysuckle is an even better (laughs) example of that and then you have 
uh, plants like honeysuckle and I think tree of heaven also are what's called allelopathic. I think that's the right term. So they put chemicals in the ground to suppress the growth of other plants other than themselves. So, I mean, he, around here, you know, if you have really bad honeysuckle thickets, there's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing but honeysuckle. So we have the direct displacement of native plants. We don't like that. In addition, there are many native insects that have an obligate relationship with certain native plants. The most famous of those is probably the monarch butterfly, which has to have its young eat on milkweed. It, it, it doesn't have another choice. And there are that is not the only example. There are many other examples, like passionflower is another one. There's the Gulf fritillary butterfly, and then there's one other that has to eat on passionflower or passion fruit vines. It, it needs that as its food source. So not only do we get the displacement of these native plants, but that in turn causes population decline in native insects, which, you know, are fundamental parts of the ecosystem. And then it just keeps on running up the chain. So it, it matters a lot to me. And as a forager, I have milkweed in my yard that I'm growing and planting because, hey, it happens to be great for my local ecology. Also, many of the species can produce edible parts that I can have too. So it just leads to more of a win-win situation. And I think it leads to people being more of advocates for their ecology, how it is already. It doesn't need anything else. It's, it's good the way it is and we need more of it. And yeah. I think that's a really great thing about foraging. Yes. No, I agree. I, I believe anytime anybody gets into nature and becomes a participant of nature and actively is there and, and builds a relationship over time, they as they start learning and identifying different things, they realize the importance of how of everything and how delicate it is once they're a part of it. And I think foraging, hunting, fishing that's when people really start to care. If you're just a casual hiker and you don't, you just say, oh, look how beautiful this is, but you don't take the time to identify these plants. You don't take the time to stop and look and see what's actually around you and how it's growing or thriving or, or becoming more scarce, then it doesn't matter to you. But it's when you become a forager, a hunter and a fisherman that you, or fisherwoman, whatever you want to say. But um, that's when you realize all these things and how important they are. It's because now you're a participant. You're actively in that setting and, and learning it. And, and that's what changes. And it's, it's great just to, no matter what, to get people into that role, and whether it be through foraging or any of the other avenues as well. And to get those people to come together on those things is an even better thing because like you said, how it develops or the ecosystem and it turns into insects. Well, guess what? Those insects turn into wild turkeys eating those insects along with all the different plant species as well. And then you start to see a decline in turkey populations or decline in fertility of the turkeys. And then the next thing you know, it affects that and it affects other things because now your predators have less food. And it's a vicious, vicious cycle that we all need to be aware of. And I think it's awesome that you bring that up and, and you mentioned that because it is a great thing to get people into that. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, <laughs> it's just uh, everyone, everyone has a part to play in this. And as we lose 
more and more land. Not everyone has a backyard, but hey, if you do have a backyard, then a great thing to do with it is to make it a little haven for the native plants that are local to your area. I think that's one of the best things that you can do. Absolutely. I've been, and that's the other thing, a lot of people, especially because on the show, we talk a lot about public land, but Mm -hmm. the private land stewards, or even if you have a small portion of land, like you mentioned, being able to, to make a safe haven for those butterflies or native bees or anything like that has a massive ripple effect that people don't realize. The same thing with people who manage their land for white-tailed deer and create an ultimate habitat. Well, those deer aren't only going to be on that land. The ground around it and the public land and everything else flourishes too, which gives greater opportunity to people. And and that that's super important. And then... um like I've been trying to do that around me and start planting in my yard, different things that bring in pollinators and all kinds of stuff like that. And trying to, rather than plant my sunflowers, plant native sunchokes and just things like that, that, you know, once they go and the, the thing is, is they take off and they flourish once they're given an opportunity, but it's been destroyed. And so recently my big quest is to eliminate a lot of the invasive honeysuckle and actually driving copper nails in it because I've tried cutting it down and even grinding the stumps and it doesn't work. So now I'm I'm killing them all the way hopefully down to the roots with a bunch of copper nails driven in them. Yeah, th- this is one of those that um it's a it's a controversial subject, but I am an advocate for the use of things like herbicide as a tool where it's applicable. So triclopyr, uh, and again, the, I'm I'm speaking of, I've done light research on this, so just be aware of that. <laughs> but with, with these tools, you know, it was uh, massive human, uh, the use of humans using fossil fuels that got us in the situation where our environment is in such a strange situation in the first place, right? Traveling all over the world, everyone. Uh, And so we can use the tools of the modern world to help us with the situation that we find ourselves in. So I'm not a fan of the broad use of herbicides like glyphosate just to douse a whole field or anything like that. But if we're talking about being able to have efficient and effective uh, taking care of things like honeysuckle or privet or tree of heaven. Hey, I'm, I'm all about that, especially with, you know, specific targeted ones where it's not affecting the ones in the area around them. I'm doing more research research on this right now, but one of the utility companies that's near me has one, they have an interestingly pro foraging take on, on their regulation. So if they have land that they own, they say, you know, as long as you are being responsible, you are not damaging or degrading the land, we're okay with you with you foraging. And their use of herbicide is also interesting to me. They talk about it on their website. Under under power lines and things like that, they're not just spraying the whole thing like crazy because they are it sounds like they're recognizing that's just a continued problem. Like we just always have to do that. Instead, what they're trying to do is to target uh, shrubs and trees that are going to grow very tall and very large and create a problem for access only they're only targeting those because they want the herbaceous plants to take over and flourish the more that they do the less that it's work for them to deal with the shrubs and trees so i would love to see more things like that 
right? Yeah. It, it, to me, that's, you know, that's prairie management in a way. And I think that's really cool. And more of it would be a really good thing. Yeah. There's actually, when you say that in the use of herbicides, I think it reminds me that, <clears throat> honestly, I think somebody took and ripped out landscaping and dumped it in one of the parking lots of one of the trailheads that I'd like to go to and utilize on some hunting ground. And it has taken over English ivy to the point to where it's choked out anything native that's on the ground that would be there. And it's actually wrapping itself around some of these younger trees. And it looks like it's going to choke out some of these trees. It used to be a spot where you could find ramps. You could find all kinds of different things that are not there anymore. It's just gone and devastated the whole area. And that's one of the, like, where I think the application of that would actually be, you know, useful. I try not to do it on my own property because I still like to forage and pick things. I know people right. utilize kill sticks and stuff like that to where it's actually just the topical application directly to the plant after they cut it. It seems like a pretty practical method there, but there actually needs to be the broad broad use of some type of herbicide herbicide to kill off that ivy because it's actually taking over and killing everything yeah the, this this year i've been at war with the english ivy in my backyard as well and what you're talking about yeah when you know a lot of these plants are just facets out of our own activities when we just clear cut a field for whatever it might be or if we destroy part of a, a park to make it grass or whatever invasive grass is not even native grasses <laughs> then yeah you know we're we're reaping what we've sown but we can sow something different so yeah yeah i don't know uh what um like i don't even know the avenue to go to try and approach somebody but it seems like it's getting out of control you know and it's like you don't want to take something on public land into your own hands but it's getting to that point where I want to protect that area and it's getting that bad to where I need to get a hold of somebody for sure and try and get, get that rectified. But, uh, so let's get back. We kind of got sidetracked here a little bit yeah, about invasives, but, um, what, uh, what other methods or anything are you I like? I know you're actively doing a lot of stuff and, um, <clears throat> the native landscape and restoring it, what, what kind of avenues are you doing to try and um, one, bring like more attention to it and, uh, and try and get more people involved in that. Yeah. So I, one of the big things, like I said early on is I'm trying to get as many people as I can to, to take the first step. Right. So I have a whole article. It's, it's literally called how to start foraging. And what I try to give you is like, here's, here's the whole map. You don't have to have the whole map written out, but like, here are the big points of interest. So here are, here's how to do it safely. Here's how to do it responsibly. Here's how to get started with plant identification and mushroom identification and so on. And yeah, I, I try to share about that. Another thing that I try to do is I, and it's kind of like my like stream of consciousness social media because I want people to know about what's going on right now. So I do my best to, this is in Al North Alabama that I'm sharing my stuff. And I'm like, hey, you know, here are the plums and here's the stage that they're at right now. Here are the service berries and here's the stage that they're at right now. So that people around me or for those north of me, and it sounds like we're, you know, kind of uh, equal in terms of timing, 
at this point. Except for you the elder like, flowers oh, well, that's and cool. stuff. I think I, yeah. we still have a few weeks for that. But yeah, I, that's pretty close, which normally we're not that close. Normally you guys are way ahead, light years ahead. Mm-hmm. As far as like we, even morels and stuff like that, normally when you guys have them popping, I'm like, oh, yeah, next month we'll have them, you know. <laughs> but One of the cool things that you get from the – it just keeps on compounding year after year. So, you know, I, I take pictures of all of all the stuff that I'm doing. So I kind of have a log. And from previous years, we seem to be about a week to two weeks behind where we normally are in terms of timing on on things popping up. And yeah, there's also just kind of like spring roulette. So this this year, plums were amazing. Oh, but black locust was terrible for black locust flowers. It's one of my favorite things to forge I haven't for. found any. I've been looking, but I have not found any yet. Yeah. And the year before, plums was terrible and black locust was amazing. And so it's just all in the timing of how the spring freezes go. Yeah. You know, whether or not the flowers were able to get pollinated and set fruit before another freeze hits. And, you know, but this year is a good one for for plums. So I'm really looking forward to that. Nice. Make some, you're going to get a juicer this year? I don't know if I'll (laughs) get a juicer. Uh, Edible Illinois, he commented on one of my videos about the plums and he said, oh, you have to make umaboshi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And that's a way of preserving plums where you're kind of packing them into salt. I'm still researching this, but that's something that I'm really looking forward to giving a shot. So almost like fermenting it into something, right? Yeah, I don't don't know to what degree it's, it's fermenting, but yeah, it's kind of making, I'm guessing like a sweet and savory hmm. treat interesting i'll have to look into what is it again umaboshi umaboshi okay yeah that's, that's something my I'll attempt at the pronunciation and that's fine it's good enough for me so jesse if somebody wants to get into foraging and read your article um how to get into foraging um where would they find that where are they going to find you and where are they going to find your awesome content on social media because it is pretty good uh i I think I honestly see more of your stuff pop up on TikTok for some reason than Instagram. The algorithm's kind of screwed up there, but um, can you tell us where to find all that? Yeah. So yeah, I would love, if you are interested in foraging, I would love for you to read that article. It's called How to Start Foraging. If you go to feralforaging.com, that's feral, like feral cat, F-E-R-A-L, foraging.com then you'll be able to find my article on the website. And yeah, if you're interested in videos about foraging and identifying plants and, and how to use them, I share all of them on social media, uh, mainly on YouTube. You can find all the stuff that I post on YouTube, uh, you know, articles and posts and videos and so on there, as well as, you know, if it's a social media platform that you're on, I probably post it there as well. So Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, you can find my stuff of your preferred social media platform. (laughs) Perfect. Jesse, it's always awesome talking to you. I always look forward to it. Um, Thank you so much. And we'll have to have you on again for sure. Thanks, Luke. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com.
And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you.